0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Richard. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Where does that uh, come from? Yeah, that was the, uh, the slogan that appeared, I think it was last year, maybe a little longer ago, on the sides of numerous buses in London. And it became uh, so popular and it received so much support and financial backing that those behind this poster campaign were able to extend it to other major cities in the UK. And the main group behind it were the BHA, the British Humanist Association, but it was also endorsed by atheist organisations around the world and key individual donors such as uh, Richard Dawkins. A couple of interesting points to, to note. Does anyone uh, know why this campaign was launched in the first place? Well, one day, the comedy writer Arian Shireen was walking to work in London. And as she walked to work, she saw two buses which had the following biblical text on them. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And at the bottom of the sign on the buses, there was a website where you were encouraged to go to find out more. And when she went home, and I'm quoting her own words now, I visited the site hoping for a straight answer to a rather pressing question. I received the following warning for anyone who doesn't accept the word of Jesus on the cross. You will be condemned to everlasting separation from God And then you will spend all eternity in torment in hell. And the upshot of that was this campaign. Where she asked anyone reading about her experience to donate £5 to help raise money to fund a reassuring counter advert. The campaign aimed to raise £5,500 it actually ended up receiving £150,000 in donations. Second interesting point to note was that that wasn't what the original slogan was going to read. Does anyone know what the original slogan was going to read? Yes, there is no God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. But they were asked to insert the word probably. And here's why. And this is according to the British Humanist Association website. As with famous Carlsberg ads, probably the best lager in the world. That's not me saying that. That's what I'm just quoting here, just in case. (laughs) Please erase that, Jim, from the tape that little bit, will you? As with the famous Carlsberg ad, probably the best lager in the world. The word probably helps to ensure that our ads will not breach any advertising codes. The committee... The Committee of Advertising Practice advised the campaign that the inclusion of the word probably makes it less likely to cause offence and therefore be in breach of the advertising code. But and I am still quoting there's another reason that I am keen on the word probably, says Arian Shireen. It means the slogan is more accurate. As even though there's no scientific evidence at all for God's existence, it's also impossible to prove that God doesn't exist. As Richard Dawkins states in The God Delusion, saying there's no God is taking a faith position. He writes, Atheists do not have faith, and reason alone could not propel one to total conviction that anything definitely does not exist. His choice of words in the book is almost certainly. But while this is closer to what most atheists believe, probably is shorter and catchier, which is helpful for advertising. I also think, she says, it's more light-hearted and somehow it makes the message more positive. It's fascinating. So, there's probably no God. Or, according, according to Dawkins, There's almost certainly no God. Discuss. But not now. Well, look, last Sunday night, we started uh, this new series on doctrine. Or to be more specific and more accurate, a new nine-week series on Christian doctrine. Where we're going to explore what we as a church and as a group of Christians believe. And tonight, we're going to look at the fact that we believe... In God. We believe there is a God. And therefore, we're coming from a very different place to those behind that poster campaign. We have a very different perception of reality. Now, as I said last week, when it comes to looking at a series in doctrine, there's a sense in which this is going to be a bit mind stretching. And, and tonight is maybe no exception. But I, as I said last week, I also hope it will be devotional. But you've already been led in thinking along the lines of who God is by Richard so brilliantly this evening. Now I know that whenever this campaign was launched, there were certain Christian organisations that got really quite angry about it. And became very outspoken. Although, and some would say thankfully, there were also those Christians who saw this as a brilliant opportunity. An absolutely brilliant opportunity and a catalyst for key conversations with family and friends and work colleagues. And the very fact that the word probably was included surely should have been a reason why more of us should have embraced this window of opportunity to engage others in dialogue. I wonder, did you have any conversations with people based on that slogan? There's probably no God. Actually, we believe there probably is. And according to the Bible, which doesn't pull any punches on this one, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. It's a strong statement. Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1. The fool is how the Bible describes those who say in their heart, there is no God. In May of last year, I was, uh, I was then intrigued by this headline, I'm not sure how clear it is, on the front page of the Saturday Review section of the Times newspaper. I think it was John who actually, who actually gave me this. Spread the word, God is back. And the writers of the article commented on the fact that although the founders of modern sociology, that's Weber and Durkham, predicted the secularization of the world, although Nietzsche loudly announced God is dead, although Freud saw religion as mere neurosis, and although Marx cursed religion as the opium of the people, the fact is that despite all such grand statements and claims, belief in God and faith in God is still very much alive. To illustrate the point, the writers of that article refer to the incredible and the surprising discovery, as far as many social commentators are concerned, that China is now on its way to becoming or to being the world's biggest Christian country. It's now estimated that there are at least 80 million Christians in China. So, spread the word. God's back. You see, as as Homer once said, that's the Greek one, not the Springfield one. As Homer once said, all men have need of the gods. You see, it's wired into our DNA to worship. There is something within every human being that recognizes there's got to be something more to life than this. Our hearts are restless. The belief that we have is that there is an an internal God-shaped vacuum and it aches. And it will continue to gnaw away at every one of us until we accept that there probably is a God. And then we've got to take that acceptance to another level, and we'll come back to that at the end. So we believe in God. We believe there is a God. Question, can we prove his existence? Well, no, we can't. But as the BHA website says, it's also impossible to prove that God doesn't exist. And so we must acknowledge, and we know that we must acknowledge, that faith is required. But it's worth making the point that over the centuries, many great Christian thinkers have tried to and attempted to prove the existence of God. And they've done that based on many factors within our world. So they have appealed to logic, saying, listen, it actually makes sense to believe in God. They've also appealed to the natural order. As you look at some of those images, people said, as you look at those images, as you look at the world around you, it points to clear evidence of planning, of design. There's got to be a grand designer. They've also appealed to the sense of morality that we all carry. Our conscience. Surely that's proof there is a God. Our innate understanding of right and wrong. That for example. Kicked in this week. Because as a nation. We watched and listened to the horrific events in South Yorkshire. Where those two brothers. 10 and 11 years of age. Beat. Kicked and tortured another two boys. For over an hour and a half. And why did they do it? What was the reason one of them gave for doing it? There was not all else to do. Now where does that sense of outrage come from? Is what some people say. Surely it points to the fact that there is a God. Now all of those, and there are more. But all of those so called rational proofs are important. They are worth considering, and they have helped many people down through the years to realise, for example, that to believe in the existence of God is certainly no act of intellectual suicide. In other words, you don't have to check your brains at the door in order to believe there is a God. But there is a problem with all such reflections. There are weaknesses in all rational proofs for God's existence. And therefore, these have been, and I guarantee you, they will continue to be debated and discussed and wrestled with for years to come. And in addition, and I think this is worth bearing in mind, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but it's been suggested that it's actually quite difficult, and this would be an interesting poll to conduct here, but it's actually quite difficult to identify many people who have come to faith based on rational proofs. Very few people, after you have a rational proof type discussion with them, go, yep, you're right. Where do I sign up? There's got to be something deeper happen. Something more. You see, certainly the mind matters. But faith is also, and maybe primarily, an issue of the heart. There's a world of difference between simply believing in God. And actually knowing God. A world of difference. You still with me? Yeah? Great. But here's an even more fundamental problem with these reflections. To say that God exists. Leaves the impression. That God is just one being or one object. Amongst a vast number of beings and objects. And as we all know. God is so much more than one being among others. Please stay with me here. See, we actually believe that God is the ground of all being. He is the foundation of all that lives. The spiritual reality, if you like, that permeates and underlies the very universe in which we live in. And that being the case, God is, in the final analysis, quite literally, and here's a key word. And we had a number of these last week as we thought about Scripture. But God is ineffable. Who knows what that means? It's not a common word. Who knows what it means, yeah? Dorothy. Yeah. Partly. Anyone else want to tease that out a bit more? It means, really, he's beyond words. Beyond words. And it's one of the reasons why I love the fact that Richard did include that song earlier, indescribable. Because in a sense we can't. We can't adequately do it anyway. God is transcendent. God surpasses the ordinary. God is exceptional. God exists apart from and is not limited to the material universe. We try and we can try to describe God and we must try to describe God but there always will be and there always must be and I think it's just so important there must be a sense of mystery. And that's why I loved what Richard read earlier I think it was from Packer about you know, God has us in his hands but we don't have God in our hands. That we can't box God. That we can't limit God. There's got to be Mystery. Because if we could fully understand God through human logic, I mean, if we could rationally prove God, then he wouldn't be completely other than. He wouldn't be God. But hang on a minute, if God is so other than, then how can we human beings ever get to know him? If he is this how can we ever enter into a relationship with him and now we're back to and I hope as you journey through with us or with us through this series you'll see how it all hangs together and connects but now we're back to what we said last week where we made the point that god has chosen to reveal himself to us in order that we can know him and if he hadn't done that there was no chance we were ever going to get the grips with god And so God has revealed himself to us, we said last week, in his word, his non-verbal word. So, the heavens declare the glory. The skies proclaim the works of his hands, is what Psalm 19 said last week. But more fully and more clearly, we we, we expressed that God has revealed himself himself to us, not just in his non-verbal word, but also in his written word in scripture. And in addition, God's revealed himself to us in his living word. In Jesus Christ. So we believe in God. We believe in a God who's not a puzzle to be solved. He's not a riddle to be explained. But we believe in a God who is a mystery. And therefore we must stand in awe of him. And we believe in a God who has revealed himself to us in order that we could know him and enjoy him forever. So, With that as a sort of background, what do we as Christians know about and believe about God? Because we've got to try. So what is God actually like? And we have sang so much of what I'm going to unpack in in a few moments already this evening. But what is God like? Well... Bruce Milne, in his classic handbook of Christian belief called Know the Truth, offers this, and he he accepts this as a provisional answer. God is a living, personal spirit. And those three terms are important. So God is alive. He is active. God does things. Secondly, God is not an impersonal force. He's not an energy. He is a personal God with a distinct character and a nature. And thirdly, God is spirit. He's non-material. He is the invisible God. So he's not bound by time and space. But we need to take this a little further. And so in the time left, what I want to do is confirm that we also believe that God is for things. Although language is so restrictive here. God is four words. God is four definitions. Of course, he's more than these four, but these are core when it comes to the doctrine of God. To begin with, the Bible actually presents God... And this is where this is going to... The Bible actually presents God as three distinguishable persons. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the technical term for that is Trinity. A word you won't find in the Bible, but it's a term... That came to be used by the early church, for example, Tertullian, in an effort to summarise the totality of biblical teaching regarding who God is. And that's why this is a foundational Christian doctrine concerning God. And we can't avoid it. And we must not avoid it. One God, we sang this in the splendour of a king. The Godhead, three in one. Father, Son and Spirit. One God, three distinct persons. We also sing sometimes, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Here's it as an equation. One plus one plus one equals one. Do you know, the Trinity is is a vitally important dogma and so this church's statement of faith, and in a sense that's what we're doing here in Sunday Nights. We're trying to work our way through, what does Winter Baptist's statement of faith say? Well, it actually declares that we believe in the Trinity and unity of the Godhead. The Trinity is important, but it's also head Melting. At one Which event. is why Augustine said this. If you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. But if you try to explain the Trinity, you lose your mind. And to be perfectly honest, I feel as if I probably have this week. So why is this important? Why is it important to, to wrestle with this? And it is important. Why? Well, let me think about why it is before I try and I'm emphasizing try explain this a little more. Well, within every human being there are deep longings. No exceptions to this. Within every human being there are deep longings. People want relationship. People want community. People want to love. People want to be loved. People long for peace. People long for unity. Communication, that's another deep longing. That's why the popularity of current things like texting and Facebook and Twitter shouldn't come as any real surprise. Because human beings want to, they enjoy relating to and connecting with others. Now where do all those longings come from? Well, we believe they're rooted in the fact that we were created in the image of God. Genesis 1:26 records God saying this: Let us, notice the language, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. Trinity clearly implied. And within the Godhead, the three in one, there is, now hear that, there is perfect relationship, perfect community, perfect love perfect unity, perfect communication, perfect connection. And so if we don't attempt to understand the Trinity, we'll never really understand what God is like and we'll never begin to come to terms with what we are supposed to be like. So let me give you a, emphasis again on the A, let me give you a definition of the Trinity. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. And I know some of you think, David, likes here is this is Sunday night. <laughs> Would there be any chance? But I really do believe this is so important that we, we, we work through this. Is this a challenge? Well, the answer is yes, it is a challenge. And the reason it is, because we're back to mystery. Ineffable. Beyond words. Back to Augustine of Hippo, key theologian, seen as one of the most important figures in the development of Christian thinking. He had a brilliant mind. He spent 16 years, some would say 19, studying the doctrine of the Trinity and writing his treatise on the Trinity. So this is a truth. This is something we believe that does force you to think. So back to this definition. It starts by affirming that we believe in one God. That's the doctrine of monotheism. We don't believe in a plurality of gods. And the one God that we do believe in is the God of Scripture. And no other. Some references, just to clarify this, Deuteronomy 4.35, The Lord Yahweh is God. Then what does it say? Besides him, there's no other The New Testament confirms there is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5. And Jesus, in his final prayer, longs for all people to know who, the only, he says, true God. And the implication being, yes, there are other gods, but they're false. The Old Testament is packed with references to numerous deities. And in Acts 17, Paul observes altars to all kinds of gods, even to the unknown God. Lots of other gods. The Bible affirms one God. And today we find ourselves surrounded by various religions and ideologies which point to and believe in other gods, but we in the Christian faith believe there is only one God monotheism. Next part of the definition who eternally exists, so never a time when the Father and the Son did not exist, and the Spirit did not exist. Psalm 92 from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. In other words, no beginning, no end. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Now, not persons as in people, but persons insofar as they think, they feel, they speak, they act. God is, as we said a moment ago, personal. Personal. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The definition then is, who are each fully and equally God. In other words, the Father is God. We believe the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There's not one more God than the other. So there you are. There's the Trinity in eight minutes. And so we believe there is a God. We also believe that although God is at one level beyond words, He has revealed Himself in order that we can know Him, in order that we can discover what He's like. And when discovering what God is like, we absolutely need to acknowledge and accept how the Bible presents Him as Father, Son and Spirit. God is the Holy Trinity. Secondly, God is powerful one of the most common terms we as a church and we've been singing it tonight one of the most common terms we as a church and many churches use in describing God is almighty God almighty we sang it in the first hymn we sang it in a couple of songs tonight many creeds many written prayers that belong to the church begin by affirming this again I referred last week to the Apostles Creed first line I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I realize that some people have a problem with God as Almighty. Because take the past couple of weeks, for example, and what happened in Haiti. Was God not mighty enough, not strong enough, not powerful enough to stop that awful earthquake? Is God not almighty enough to intervene before things like that strike? That's an understandable question that many people in our society today ask. But it's too big a question to address in this context. We believe that despite our struggles with issues such as life-devastating natural disasters, God is nevertheless, God is still almighty. He is omnipotent. A word medieval theologians used to convey the truth that God is all-powerful. Accept that by faith. I accept that by faith. Hard as it is sometimes. And the power of God is evidenced extremely clearly in the acts of creation. God spoke. This is how powerful this God is. God spoke. And increasing order came out of chaos. And again, we live in a world where this idea of a powerful creator God is challenged. It's ridiculed. Believing in a God who created is becoming difficult. And in the midst of all the debate, we simply want to affirm... That we believe in a powerful God who, according to Genesis, the book of beginnings, is the ultimate cause and origin of creation. Exactly how or the way it all took place, that will continue to be discussed for many years. Both within the church and beyond the walls of every single church. But at the end of the day, what we believe is that God is powerful. And creation confirms it. He is the cause. He is the origin. He is the source. Next, we believe God is holy. He's utterly pure. He's completely perfect. He's absolutely separate from all other beings. He's without any sin, without evil. And whenever people were given visions of God, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was this aspect of God that immediately stood out. Holy. Holy, holy. Lord, God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. God is holy. That's what we believe. Now, I know I'm only scratching the surface of this. And finally for now, God is love. It's the best known biblical definition. 1 John 4, 8. It's the core aspect of his character. Everything he does. And again, this, this doesn't sit well with people when you say this. This is what we believe. Everything God does is loving. Everything He does is loving. Everything He does is just. It's right. That's what we've just saying a moment ago. Craig. Right and just is who God is. Expressions of His love. And the greatest expression of that love is seen in Jesus and the cross. This is love, is what the Apostle John says. This is love. Here it is. That God sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And exactly what we mean by that and what we believe about that is going to be explained in week 5 of this series. So God is Father. Son. Holy Spirit. God is Trinity. God is Powerful. God is holy. God is love. That's what we believe. So much more under all of that. But that's what we believe. The question, as I finish before I hand back to Richard, how should we respond? How should we respond? Three ways. God is to be worshipped. God is to be served. And God is to be proclaimed. And that's why we meet like this. That's what we leave here to do. And that's why we share what we believe with others, not only in word, but in deed. You see, we believe that there is probably a God. And we don't worry unnecessarily because Jesus has told us not to. And not only do we enjoy life, but because of Jesus, we enjoy life to the full. That's what we believe about God.